Welcome to the Travel Possibilities Podcast. I'm your host, Callie O'Connor. I've gone from career burnout to taking multiple career breaks, scoring several remote jobs, and even starting my own business while traveling to over 80 countries. The one thing that held me back from starting sooner was that I didn't believe it was possible for me. I wasn't aware that travel could become part of my lifestyle. Through this podcast, I'm so excited to share with you the travel possibilities that are out there for you. In season three, we're talking all about travel jobs. Let's get started. Welcome back. And I'm so excited to introduce to you today's guest, Emily. We're talking about really important work. So Emily is a humanitarian aid worker who has lived and worked in some of the world's most dangerous places, including Afghanistan, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, and Niger. In late 2019, burnt out from the stress of living in these places and managing huge projects with impossible deadlines, she quit her full-time job to travel the world and write a memoir about her experiences. Then, due to the pandemic, the whole world shut down. Emily was in Lombok, Indonesia at the time and decided to wait it out on the small island of Gili Air. After she finished writing her book, she wasn't ready to go back to a full-time job that dictated where she lived. And she had always dreamed about becoming a consultant, but had this limiting belief that it would only be possible after she had like over 20 years of experience. But in order to stay location independent, she decided to give it a try. And two years later, she has so much work that she has to turn down offers. Now she mainly writes multi-million dollar project proposals for NGOs and does research around gender and social inclusion issues. She has recently started trauma-informed transformational life coaching and is a yoga teacher. And in her spare time, she writes articles for publications like Newsweek and Lonely Planet. So guys, this conversation is such a good one. It's to me fascinating to learn from someone who's traveled to these places, worked in these places, and contributes in such a positive way. So without further ado, here's the interview. Welcome back to the Travel Possibilities Podcast. I am here today with my guest, Emily, and we have a really interesting line of work to talk about. So I'm going to hand it over to you, Emily, to introduce yourself. Thanks so much for being here. Hi, I'm Emily. I'm a humanitarian aid worker who has lived in some of the world's most dangerous places, but I'm currently based on a teeny tiny island, Gili Air, off the coast of Lombok, Indonesia. Amazing. So can you just take us back into earlier in your life? Like, what were your plans when you first graduated from college? What were your plans when you wanted to enter the workforce? How did you get into humanitarian aid work? Sure. So um, I guess it's kind of in my blood. (laughs) I grew up listening to my father's stories about climbing mountains in the Andes, about um, doing a five-month cross-African road trip in a VW van for five months. (laughs) Um, He actually worked for the Peace Corps after being a Peace Corps volunteer. And so that really kind of let me know that, you know, there were more places to travel in the world outside of, you know, Europe and Asia. And so um, in college, I studied abroad, first in France, and then in Senegal. And so that was my first intro to Africa. And it was a completely life changing experience. Um, I just every day, 
Um, I learned new things and I felt just this sense of wonder and also um, spending time in some of the villages and speaking to people about the problems that they faced. I felt inspired to try and do something to help people in other countries. So after college, I joined the Peace Corps too, and I went to Cameroon for two years. Wow, that's amazing. So can you tell us a little bit about the Peace Corps and what it was like and what kind of work you did in Cameroon? Sure. So um, if you're unfamiliar with the Peace Corps, it's a U.S. government agency, and it's a volunteer program for recent college graduates, although um, now they've been promoting it for people who have come out of retirement and as well. And you can do it really at any point in your life. So it's a two-year commitment. It's a volunteer organization, and they give you a very small, small stipend, basically. So you live like a local person. And um, you can be placed anywhere in the world, although they have pretty strict safety requirements. So, you know, there are different areas where where you'd be focused. So you can be an education volunteer teaching English or biology. Um, You can be a health volunteer, uh, agriculture or small enterprise development. That's what I was, small enterprise development volunteer, working with uh, local NGOs, teaching business classes, Um, working with microfinance institutions, that type of thing. Very cool. Did that just pave the way for the rest of your career? Once you were finished with the Peace Corps, you're like, I have to keep doing work like this? Yeah, um, I don't know what happened to me in my early 20s, but I was very focused on my career and um, looking forward. And I just saw this path illuminated. I had taken French um, in high school and college, and then I got sent to um, Francophone Africa. So I was pretty fluent in French by this point. Um, I saw that I was good at that work. I actually, so Peace Corps volunteers, some of them don't do much besides sit around and, and you know, drink beer. Um, but, and there are like no penalties for that necessarily, but they also say, you know, one of the goals of Peace Corps is for people abroad to have a better understanding of Americans. So you know, that's not always a bad thing, but you can do as much work as you want. And so I worked a lot and I really got a lot out of it. It made me feel um, really fulfilled, um, especially just working closely with local people and seeing what they really wanted to do and trying to like help them make that happen. And so after Peace Corps, I went to grad school for international relations and economics. And then um, after grad school, you know, I, a lot of my, my friends were getting kind of entry-level jobs in DC working in offices. And I was like, I can't sit in an office. I don't want to just be in DC wearing a suit and like commuting to work every day. I want to go out and get my hands dirty. I want as much responsibility as possible. I want to see like amazing things and explore the world. So Um, I actually turned down like a pretty prestigious fellowship with the U.S. government to um, go back to Africa. So I took a fellowship with an NGO, uh, Catholic Relief Services. You don't have to be Catholic to work for them because I'm not. Um, And they sent me to Eastern Congo, which was the hardest place I've ever lived. (laughs) Wow. So you didn't have a choice in where they sent you. They just sent you. Well, so, yeah, that's actually an important thing about to know about um, humanitarian aid and development work, international development work. That's what we call it. Um, You don't have that much of a choice. So 
I said yes to Congo, to DRC, and they had told me I would be going to Kinshasa, the capital. But at the last minute, they, they decided to send me to the east. And I'm not sure how much um, you know about Congo, but the east is um, historically very insecure. There were multiple civil wars and they say like up to five million people were killed. It's also like a bad place for gender-based violence. Um, so attacks on women and, and things like that. So it was very scary. And I thought about not going, but I did say yes, ultimately. Wow. So how long were you there? And can you tell us what it was like? Yeah, I was there for a year. And I think, so it's interesting because it's a very, very beautiful place. It's central Africa. It's like the heart of Africa. It's in these volcanic highlands. It's cool. It's not really hot. And there's this beautiful lake and forests and it's, it's just gorgeous. Um, and it was hard to kind of reconcile that with the history that I knew about it. But what that really taught me living there is that, you know, you read all of this stuff on the news about conflict zones and like these really dangerous countries but when you're actually there, you're not on the front lines of that conflict, usually, unless you're in the wrong place at the wrong time. And the people who live there, that is their life. And, you know, they live every day. They live out their, their daily lives. They're just trying to get by and it's calm. And it's, I mean, it can be even peaceful. And sometimes you can forget that you're there. And so that's when I really learned like, oh, this is not conflict zones aren't what you see on the news. It's not bullets whizzing over your head. It's not running for your life every day. You can like live a relatively normal life, even in a place like that. That makes total sense. Cause like, it's not very attention grabbing to show the day-to-day -day life of people in a conflict zone. You have to show like the actual dangers and things that are happening to grab the attention of the viewers. Yeah, hundred percent for shock value. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So how did you prepare yourself to go there? And what, kind of what was your day-to-day -day like? Um, sure. So luckily I had been to the Peace Corps in Cameroon, as I mentioned. So I knew that I needed to bring um, a lot of like basics with me. I was allowed to bring two suitcases. I was there for a year. And um, I didn't really know what to expect. I had contact with some of the expats um, in the office beforehand, and they told me kind of what I could get at the supermarket and what I couldn't. And so, you know, I brought like the things that you have to bring when you're going to these places. So like your favorite toiletries, um, you have to bring culturally appropriate clothing, but that's still like, okay, if you're going to travel out to the field, as we call it, so out to the villages, um, you know, it's, you're not worried about like getting your heels muddy. <laughs> um, what else? There, I didn't have to bring malaria medication, but a lot of the time you have to do that. Um, you know, bringing a lot of books, even though they weigh your suitcase down. This was like before I got a Kindle, um, you know, maybe bringing some of your favorite spices or food and things that remind you of home and just um, setting up. And then my day to day, I uh, lived in a neighborhood and they actually let me drive there. I was based in the city of Bukavu and I drove this like massive land cruiser and, you know, the traffic was insane and it was like my least favorite part of my day. Um, and I would head to the office and then I worked with like an all Congolese team. So it was all in French every day. 
and we were working on this emergency agriculture project. So there's this um, plant disease that's attacking the banana plants in the region um, called banana wilt disease, which is kind of a funny name, but um, it's really detrimental to the plants. And so this project was like, okay, what do we do to help farmers prevent, um, you know, this disease from attacking their fields because it's a really important crop to them. And then sometimes we would travel out to the field and stay for, you know, two weeks out in these villages where there are no hotels. So we would stay with the priests. <laughs> I'm not even joking. And there was like no electricity and running water. Um, yeah, just intense times. But um, those are my favorite times is being out in the villages and working with the teams. And yeah, it was cool. <laughs> wow. <laughs> what an adventure. That's yeah. just incredible. And so after your year in Congo, what did you do next? Um, after that, I went to Afghanistan for a year. Okay. With the same yes. company? Yes, with the same company. Um, that's when I was promoted to being a program manager um, for livelihoods. And in development speak, livelihoods is like, okay, what, what you do for employment, what skills do you have um, to make money for your family? So I was managing a program that was um, teaching farmers how to grow higher value crops like strawberries, how to use greenhouses, um, working with women on like food transformation. So making jams and jellies or dried fruit and then some vocational training. So teaching people how to like fix motorcycles and refrigerators. And then um, we would also then connect them to market as we say. So okay, you've grown the strawberries, but like, how do you sell them? Okay, we're going to look at like who the buyers are in the market. We're going to make sure that the quality of the strawberries is good. And we're going to facilitate these connections so people can then have a profitable business. And we were working mainly with returned refugees. So people that had fled to Iran during the um, like the Afghan civil wars and conflict under the Taliban, and then had recently returned back home after many years. So trying to get their life going again, get back on their feet. Wow. That's just incredible. Then such important work. And I think probably a lot of people aren't aware of what goes on. Like when people said, say that they do aid work and that's amazing. So Nobody has any idea what I'm, what I do. Exactly. <laughs> They like pretend like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm so happy to have you here to talk about it. Thanks. And what did you think like when you learned you were going to go to Afghanistan? It's funny because my mom, like a few months before, because we were talking about like, it was going to be time for me to move on from the DRC. And she was like, well, as long as they don't send you to someplace like Afghanistan, because then you would just have to come home. <laughs> but it's interesting because I felt like after a year spent in Congo, I, I really did have that perspective that um, it, it could be, it could, I could have like a, a good life, even in a place that's so like covered in the media and known for its conflict. So actually what the organization did that I thought was really cool is they brought me to Afghanistan for a two week trip to kind of test me out and to make sure that like I could handle it there. And when I went, I like, I knew I wanted to be there. Interestingly, like, I mean, it's very different. It's unlike any other place I've ever been. The culture is very strong. So like, you have to wear long sleeves, long pants as a woman, something that's like covering your butt, you have to, you know, you're not allowed to show your chest, you have to cover your head when you're out in public. Um, like, it's very 
it's a very proud culture and it's, um, it's really important to be respectful. Like that goes a long way, but just the people are so warm and hospitable. It has this really fascinating history and there is just so more, so much work to be done there, which is why like, it's so hard for me to watch what's going on there now. Absolutely. Wow. It's really powerful. And so after one year, is it do one year placements or did you have the option to extend if you wanted to, or how does that work? Yeah, that contract in Afghanistan was open-ended. Um, but after about a year, I, it was really hard for me. Um, I would call myself a feminist and I'm, you know, I'm very outspoken and outgoing. And I was, I was managing a team of 25 Afghans. Um, and the team was great, but the culture is just, it's very difficult to be a woman, you know, like you have to sit in the back of, of, of the car. You're not allowed to sit in the front seat. You know, that's just like the tip of the iceberg. And I just, you know, I started to think like, okay, I've managed this project. It's gone really well. Um, it was going to basically re-up and be the same project again. And as I mentioned, I was just very focused on my career in my twenties. And um, I, I was like, oh, I don't want to do the same thing for another year. I want, I want to learn more. I want more responsibility. I want to move up. And so I was, I started looking around and my best friend had just gotten a job at the world bank in Washington, DC. And I, and I was like, maybe I can move back to DC. I'll like, let me just look at some jobs at the world bank. And I applied to one job and then I got it and (laughs) I couldn't like the world bank is really prestigious in our line of, in our line of work. And so I felt like I kind of couldn't say no. And I was like really excited to go back and be able to walk around outside to wear what I wanted to go to whole foods, to go to yoga classes. (laughs) So, um, I moved back to DC. And how long did you work in DC? Um, I worked in DC for about for almost four years. Yeah. About four years. Yeah. Yes. Spoiler alert, Emily left this world to kind of go off and consult. So when did that happen? And can you walk us through that process? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, after DC, I took another field position in Niger in West Africa um, for a few years. But really what what happened is that um, my mother got very sick with ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, which is a brutal terminal illness. And like I was her caretaker in DC and then I lost her. I I was her only child. um, And it was like an incredibly difficult time, um, you know, for a variety of reasons. And then on top of that, my work, um, like this work as, you know, working in humanitarian aid work, um, they never have enough staff for the amount of work to do. And your life is your job. Like you're in Afghanistan or Congo specifically to do that work or Niger. So you don't really have a life outside of work. And so I I tried to like put everything that had happened with my mom behind me and, and go to Niger. And I worked like even harder, I would say, to just really, I wasn't ready to process my grief about it. Um, and I started getting this like chronic back pain, like really bad shoulder, neck, back pain, and no one could explain it. And, um, and I was like, something's wrong here. Like, I think, I think I need to get out and take a break. And I had actually traveled with a few friends 
to Namibia who, and, and they were taking a year off from work and traveling the world. And I had actually done a yoga teacher training after my mom passed with a woman who was also traveling the world. And so these people kind of planted this um, in my head that, hey, like it's okay to take a sabbatical from work and travel. And I've, I'd always wanted to write a book too. So basically I decided like, Hey, I'm in, I'm in pain all the time. I'm stressed. Like I haven't fully processed my mom's death. Like, why don't I just take a break and stop climbing the career ladder? By then I reached, you know, my dream position basically at a really like great um, organization. And I was like, you know what? I think I can take a step back from this. In fact, like I need physically to take a step back from this. So I quit my job and decided to travel. And that was December, 2019. And we all know what happened in 2020. (laughs) That we do. (laughs) So in this point in time, when you're making the decision to leave your job and you're experiencing all these things, was it a difficult decision or were you at the point where you're like, this is really the only way forward? You know, I'd been thinking about what I wanted to do next for a long time. I was thinking like, maybe I'll go back and get a PhD. Maybe I just like, I've been in Niger for almost three years. Maybe I want to get a similar job, but then I just felt like I didn't have the reserves to, to start a new job. I didn't have the energy. I knew I wasn't going to do like the work according to my standards, which, which are very high. And And so, you know, like it kind of, it was like a process of elimination. I've always loved to travel and, you know, with, with my work, I've, I've had the opportunity to travel to so many different places, you know, and like you actually make decent enough money as a humanitarian aid worker because your expenses are really low. So like you have the money to go out and travel. And a lot of the time it's included, you get like R and R. So, you know, and so you get, you get the opportunity to explore new places. So Yeah. So I started planning, you know, where I wanted to go. And it was just this dream. And I was like, I can do this. I'm just going to. And so it it just felt right. And it was the process of elimination. Perfect. And in this time off traveling, like, how did you feel? Were you getting like the clarity and the reset and everything that you needed? Well, so my traveling basically got cut short because of COVID. (laughs) Yeah. So you know, I had planned to do about six months in Southeast Asia, but I also, I really prefer to do slow travel. Um, I like, you know, I, I like to really get to know a place. I like to walk around and not feel rushed to see the sites I've done all, you know, so many sites, you know, I can maybe fit one in if I'm feeling good about it, but I really like to get to know a place. And then I was, I was working on my book at the time as well. So I spent two months in Thailand in Chiang Mai and in the islands. And then I came to Indonesia and I'd never been to Indonesia before. So I spent a month in Bali and then I went to Lombok and then the world shut down. (laughs) Um, And yeah, I was getting my reset. I mean, solo travel is great. It can be a little bit lonely and something one of my friends had said before I left was like, Hey, you've gone through a lot do you really feel like it's a great idea to be alone right now? And I was like, that's a good, that's a good point. But at the same time, solo travel, I think can be a great opportunity to meet new people, even more so than if you're traveling with a friend or a partner. So 
basically I ended up on Gilly air because I decided not to go back to the U S I did. I wasn't ready. It had only been, you know, three months. I wasn't ready to get a new job. I saw that the U S was shutting down. It was winter. It's very depressing in DC in February, March. Um, and so I was like, I, you know, it's a risk, but I think I'm just going to stay in Indonesia for the foreseeable future on this tiny paradise Island. And while I was there, I started making friends and I met my fiance. <laughs> Yay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> wow. It's funny how sometimes like decisions like this, you're like, oh, wow, that really did work out better than I could have ever planned. Totally. Totally. Yeah. And, um, you know, so I finished writing my book, which is a memoir about my, you know, experiences living in these different places and then also caring for my mother and then the decision to leave my job. So this is the book. Um, I haven't published it yet because um, spoiler alert, if you've written a memoir and you're a previously unpublished author, unless you have like 500,000 followers on Instagram have written a viral article already right for the New York times. They're like, not going to be interested in you. They're not going to take a chance. So I've been working on like publishing some other stuff, other articles and magazines and stuff, but it was like, okay, this is not good. I'm not going to become this best-selling author overnight. It takes a lot of work. Okay. I've not been working for a year. Can I still live on this Island somehow make money can I continue on with my humanitarian aid work? And so um, I had always thought that in order to be a consultant in the humanitarian aid sector, that you needed to be like 50 to 60 years old, have, you know, 20, 30 years of experience. And then only then could you be called on for your expertise. But um, what I found is that because I already had, you know, a decade worth of experience, I actually had, um, a lot to offer people. And I thought that because I'd mostly been a manager that I wouldn't be able to get work. But in fact, because I um, developed a lot of projects, because I'd written a lot of reports and project proposals asking for money, I was able to easily, actually pretty easily get get jobs. Um, So, you know, these NGOs, they'll see like, oh, one of the big donors like USAID is offering $20 million in this country. And we really want that money, but all of our staff is too busy to write the project proposal. We need to bring in an outsider who can dedicate hundred percent of their time to this. And so that's a lot of what I do. I also um, do gender analyses. I do baseline surveys. So it's a lot of writing and you know, after doing that for a year, like I don't even need to apply to jobs anymore. They come to me. It's amazing. (laughs) Wow. That's incredible. And so exciting. And I love like how you had this belief that was going to hold you back, but then like you overcame it. And I think that's so prevalent with like many of us, like, oh, I can't do that because, but like, what if you can? Exactly. And I think actually, COVID in a way helped me because, you know, I was forced to stay in one place and also where, you know, there's a relatively a a much lower cost of living. And so I didn't have that fear that I was going to run out of money um, the way that I would have had I gone back to DC. And so it allowed me to kind of 
you know, try and fail to, because it, it did take a while to build up my consulting practice. At first I was applying to a lot of things and not really getting things. And then I realized that so much of it consulting in my field is based on your network. So if you can have one person who knows you and speaks well of you, they'll hire you. Mm -hmm. Um, so just expanding that network. Once I worked for somebody, I was able to get, you know, many, I was recommended to others. They came back to me. Yeah. And I had never thought that I would be able to live this life, you know, where I, I don't wear shoes. Like I don't wear makeup. I, you know, I put my feet in the ocean every day and yet I'm able to like sit at my desk, um, make good money, and, you know, sometimes travel to these, these hard places, but not be based there and not have that be my entire life. Like I actually have my own life now. <laughs> Absolutely. That's so cool. And I love the transformation and how, like in terms of work, how much time do you spend working each day? Is the balance much better? Yeah. You know, it, it varies. Like I, it's, the nice thing about being a, a consultant is that you can work as little or as much as you want. Um, and so sometimes I've taken on way too much and I'll work seven days a week, like 10 to 12 hour days, which is way too much. And I'm like, wait, why am I doing this? I could be anywhere. Um, fortunately those are only for short periods of time, but it's like, if you want to make a lot of money to do something specific, it's, it's good for that. Um, and then you can take like large chunks of time off. So that's also been great because I've been able to, as I mentioned, go to South Africa for three weeks. Whereas, you know, when you're working the nine to five job, you're like, okay, will this work? Like, you know, with my boss's schedule, okay, I can take a week off or maybe two weeks. And then I only have this much. Yeah. So it's amazing for that. And so it's like looking at like, okay, how much money am I making over the total, um, you know, over the full year. And then also, again, because it's a low cost of living, you, um, it's not as stressful if you're not working certain months. Very cool. So if somebody wanted to get started in your line of work, they're new, what would you recommend? Sure. So um, international development, humanitarian aid work, it is a little bit old school in its requirements. So they really want people to have field experience. So for example, um, doing the Peace Corps after college, if you do some reputable volunteer work. So um, like Teach for America is big, um, Habitat for Humanity, that kind of thing. Um, less so like teaching English in South Korea, they might not like it's cool, but they might not consider that to be like this real experience. They also, you know, take internships really seriously. So if you're able to get, unfortunately, usually unpaid internships with different organizations, that's a good way to get in. And then typically they do want you to have um, a master's degree if you do want to move up in an organization. And usually if you get a master's degree, they should also have good career services to advise you on, on what to do next. Very cool. Thank you so much. Your story is really inspiring start to finish. So like, I think it's really important to talk about these places and these hard jobs. It's a cool opportunity to travel, but it's difficult and it's incredible. So thank you for the work that you've done. And if people want to learn more about you, where can they find you online? Um, so currently I'm kind of revamping my Instagram a little bit. Um, I haven't posted in a while, but that's because, you know, spoiler alert, I'm also starting to do some life coaching. I've been um, doing some 
um, coaching certifications to be trauma-informed and I'm starting a breathwork facilitator training. I also mentioned that I am a yoga teacher. So I'm really wanting, um, after what happened with my mom, I also recently lost my nephew. I'm really inspired to help people move through grief and loss and um, be able to feel their emotions in a safe way. And so I'm my dream is to be able to do both types of work because, you know, I've also worked with a lot of really traumatized people in these different places and to helping people at an individual level is really important to me. So my dream is to be able to do both. So Emily on the move, my name is spelled E-M-I-L-I-E on the move is me on Instagram. And, you know, from there, let's see. Perfect. And I'm linking it in the show notes for easy access. So Emily, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for inspiring us. And I have no doubt that you'll be able to do both lines of work because I mean, look what you've accomplished already. So thanks so much. And everyone else, I'll catch you on the next episode. Thanks, Kelly. Wait, before you go, if you are here because you are exploring your travel options, I'm excited to share with you that I've just revamped my free offerings to help you on your journey. Whether you need help budgeting for a career break, saving money for a trip, or learning how to effectively apply for a remote job, I've got you. Visit the link in the show notes or go directly to www.travelshifters.com freebies to download what you need. And don't hesitate to let me know what you think. Thank you for tuning in to the Travel Possibilities Podcast. If you liked what you heard, I would be so thankful for your positive review on Apple Podcasts so I can keep the episodes coming. If you aren't already following me on social media, come soak up the extra tips and travel inspiration on Instagram by following me at The Travel Shifters or by visiting my website at travelshifters.com. Thank you so much for being here and I can't wait to connect with you in the next episode. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss it.